0: this is
1: Shafali, and you're listening to Peds Admit. Our goal with this podcast is to help us all become the best pediatricians we can be. However, in the setting of the current COVID-19 pandemic, adult hospitals have been absolutely inundated with patients, and pediatric residents are increasingly being tasked with helping out with this burden by seeing some of these patients. We realize that this can be pretty scary because many of us have not had to treat any adult patients since med school. We also understand it is an important role that we'll be serving over the next weeks to months, and we figured it would be a good time to review some of the core topics in internal medicine to help us brush up on our knowledge bases as we start to see these older patients coming into our EDs and wards. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll be releasing a few adult admit episodes, during which we'll be sitting down with residents and fellows who have experience in internal medicine to basically just pick their brains and figure out the most important information we need to know to provide these patients with the best and safest possible care. To kick things off, today we'll be talking to Dr. Sneha Kannan. She is a third-year Internal Medicine resident at Mass General Hospital up in Boston, and we are going to be talking about adult vital signs and how to interpret them, as well as some of the first few steps you take in sepsis
2: escalation in adult patients. Let's get started. Sneha, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
1: So before we get started, if you want to tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're coming from.
0: Absolutely. I'm Sneha. I'm one of the medicine seniors at Mass General, so third year internal medicine resident. And I have to give the disclaimer that I'm not speaking on behalf of Mass General Hospital. I'm just speaking based on my own clinical experience.
1: We're very excited to be sitting down with you and going through some basics of adult medicine that we think will be very helpful to us.
0: Happy to be here.
1: So let's just start off with the very, very basics. There are some big differences between vital signs and how we interpret them for pediatrics versus in internal medicine. Absolutely. I was wondering if we could just basically go vital sign
2: by vital sign. Just walk us through your normal values.
0: Absolutely. So we'll start with temperature because in the era of COVID, fevers are really important. So typical range is anywhere from 35 to 38 Celsius, which technically is 95 to 100.4. But it's worth noting that most of us don't do anything for a temperature of 100.4. So I counsel my patients that anything that they should call me with anything above 101. I think 100.4 is what we typically see in most other viral infections. So someone had a cold or the flu, for example. But if we're seeing, you know, a pneumonia, bacterial infection, something more severe, 101 is usually where we start trying to figure out what to do. And we'll sort of go through the other vital signs, but not every abnormality needs to necessarily be treated. So if someone looks well, and has a fever of 101, my first step is usually we'll look at them, make sure they aren't rigoring, they don't look clammy and otherwise look well. And then at that point, we usually just try a little bit of Tylenol. If I can bring it down and they otherwise feel well, and it was just an isolated one-off, that doesn't necessarily need any treatment. It's a lot different if someone has cancer or is neutropenic or is immunocompromised or they look ill, so they're rigoring, they have other sort of clinical signs, symptoms, lab values consistent with an infection. Then at that point, it would be worth triggering blood cultures, culturing sputum, urine, trying to find a source, putting them on broad spectrum antibiotics while we're trying to figure out what's going on.
1: Gotcha. What I'm hearing is this is essentially the same as the majority of pediatrics. In pediatrics, we use that 100.4 cutoff for our neonates and our infants. We are much more liberal with our fevers. I agree with you, 101 to 101.3 in our older children. And then our other group that we are very concerned about are our neutropenic patients, immune compromised patients. Those are the ones that we also use that lower threshold for. But otherwise I agree. A one off fever, not super concerning unless they have other clinical signs and symptoms concerning for a serious infection. Exactly. Okay. If we transition to heart rate next,
2: I feel like this is the big difference, honestly, in, in vital signs. Yeah, in PEDS, everyone is tachycardic and hypotensive all the time, right? So, what do you consider to be an elevated heart rate?
0: Yeah, I'm thinking back to way back in my PEDS training. I remember a 55 would have been really alarming. So, <laughs> we typically think of the Textbook is 60 to 100. We tend to tolerate a little bit lower than that, like high 50s. But there's a couple caveats. So on the bradycardia side, young people and older people, so young healthy people like any of us and older people often get bradycardic when sleeping. And so it's not at all uncommon that if you hook someone up to cardiac monitoring, you'll see their heart rates go down into the 30s when they're sleeping. And that's not cause for alarm. I think um, if that happens, and you don't really know what's going on, or if that's okay, the first time you can wake them up and make sure they feel okay. But this, we try to actually, in patients that we're not super concerned about something happening overnight, just disconnect the monitor overnight, because it just keeps Mm -hmm. alarming. And then on the tachycardia side, we use 100 as a cutoff. And that's a pretty hard and fast rule. The things to always worry about with tachycardia is always sort of the kind of tachycardia. The thing that's least concerning is sinus tachycardia. So, you know, we could talk for like hours about management of tachycardia. (laughs) But I think the basic things to remember is if someone's tachycardic, get a full 12 lead EKG, make sure that it's not VTAC. So if it's a wide complex tachycardia, unless you have very good proof that that's what their morphology looked like beforehand, you should always treat it like VTAC. So, I think at that point, you know, call a rapid response, whatever your hospital's policy is, and make sure there's more hands on deck and more medications to give. But the first step is always to make sure the person has a pulse, get a 12 lead EKG, and get a blood pressure. Like those three things should be happening anytime you have someone with tachycardia. And then the triage and management of that will vary based on what's going on.
1: So, that's helpful to know. I think on the bradycardia side, as pediatricians, we definitely see bradycardia with sleeping in our younger athletic teenagers in particular. We see profound bradycardia that is concerning in our patients with eating disorders, of course, but we have that. So in that way, that's a nice comparison and makes a lot of sense from our perspective. On the tachycardia side is, again, that cutoff is very, very different. We have our age groups and our criteria and kids under the age of one, it's not uncommon for an infant to be, you know, in the 130s all the way to the 160s if they're, you know, under six months old. So, there you, go. <laughs> you know, that's the difference there. And I think having that initial workup, what is the type of tachycardia that you're seeing, looking at the monitor make sure you're getting the EKG.
2: Those are some good things to remember. Moving on to respiratory rate, something that we do, Every time we examine a a toddler or a child in the hospital is manually count the respiratory rate. We spend a lot of time thinking about tachypnea. What do you think of as your normal respiratory rate? And do you spend a lot of time doing this too?
0: That's a really great question because the normal respiratory rate is, if you look places, it'll be 12 to 20. I will say I almost never care about it unless it's markedly above 20 or markedly below 12. It's interesting because a lot of the patients, we sometimes sort of laugh about this is, you know, in the flow sheets in our computer it'll be documented respiratory rate of 18 and that's fine. Uh, you're in my respiratory rate's like 8. So, a respiratory rate of 18 is actually reasonably high, but the two situations where I think about it is one, if someone's uptunded, and their mental mm-hmm. status isn't great and they're barely breathing. And then the flip side is someone's in respiratory distress and their respiratory rate is above 30. Those are the two cases where I would say I care a lot about it more. Um, The reason I don't spend a lot of time measuring it, though, is that both of those are relatively obvious if you just look Mm -hmm. at the patient. I can usually just tell if they're an extremist in either direction.
1: Absolutely. That's good to keep in mind. And obviously, again, with our younger patients, we have a lot higher cutoffs for the upper limits of normal there. So keeping in mind that something 20 to 30 is really your upper limit of normal for most adults. And yeah, I guess you're not sitting there watching
0: adults closely for like belly breathing and retracting. If they're retracting, you've gone too far. No, actually, the belly breathing, definitely. So if someone is breathing at 30, we care a lot about if they're tripodting, if they're belly breathing, if they're using accessory muscles, which I think is something similar to retracting. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's We do actually document all of that. So if someone is breathing at 35, I pay attention to all of those things. And I I do have attendings for like, again, academic exercises who do go into the room every time and measure the respiratory rate. I'm just, I'm not one of those people.
2: You will know. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to blood pressure because I think that this might be the most noteworthy difference. Can you walk us through how you think about normal blood pressures on the floor and what will actually trigger you to do something?
0: Yeah. Blood pressure is definitely the most common thing I get called for on rapid responses. So it's important to know. As an aside, I actually don't remember what normal blood pressures are in kids. It's really embarrassing. But on the adult world, systolic 90 to 120 is normal. When it deviates beyond that, there's a bunch of different ways that they can be managed based on how serious it is. So we can start with hypotension because that's easy. Systolic below 90 is very rarely tolerated. I think... There are a few situations where it's normal for the patient. And so one of the first things to do when you get called for hypotension is go to the bedside and look at the patient. People who sit at a normal blood pressure and now all of a sudden have a systolic in the 70s or 80s will look ill. They're going to look confused. They're going to be a little clammy. They're just not going to look like themselves. The two patient populations I think that are worth mentioning are your end-stage liver disease patients and heart failure patients, much on the more advanced stage heart failure both of those patients often live in the 80s and so can tolerate the 70s and 80s without looking very ill. I think at that point, the triage always is, one, is the patient looking ill or not? Two, what's their baseline? And then three, is there any evidence that their body is not tolerating that blood pressure even if they look okay? So do they have an AKI? Are they bumping a lactate? Are they very cold and all of a sudden they're distal pulses are very weak, if their urine outputs dropped off, those are things that we can look for pretty quickly. And I think that will tell you whether or not the hypotension needs to necessarily be treated. I will say, personally, I've tolerated blood pressures in the 80s pretty often. Blood pressures in the 70s, though, are tough, like almost regardless of who the patient is and what their medical history is, I am more inclined to treat that. The treatment for hypotension depends a lot on the cause. Typically, while we're trying to get things together with the exception of cardiogenic shock where more fluid can be very harmful, we usually hang fluid. So the four big categories of shock is one, hypovolemia. So have they bled out recently? Are they getting, having insensible losses from fevers? Have you over-diurese them? The second is obstructive. So the typical things we think about are either PE or tamponade. The third is cardiogenic. And the fourth is distributive or septic. Most of those, with the exception of cardiogenic, fluid is a reasonable first step for the other three. So hanging fluid wide open in a large-bore IV is a very good step. Cardiogenic, there's almost nothing to do with the bedside. Other then recognize it's cardiogenic. And the things to look out for is if someone has known heart failure and is all of a sudden cold on exam with a drop in blood pressure, that's just an escalation to an
2: ICU. There's not much that can be done at the bedside. That's sort of a first step. Two follow-up questions there. When you're looking at the heart rate in these patients and sort of your initial evaluation, I would expect that if they're not tolerating their blood pressure, they'll also be tachycardic. Is this something that you find? That's a great
0: question. I think the physiology would tell us that patients should be tachycardic if they're hypotensive. In reality, there's a lot of reasons someone may not be. So if they have existing conduction disease in their heart, that doesn't let them mount a tachycardic response. Two is medications. I mean, so many of our patients are on beta blockers or calcium channel blockers and actually blunt the heart rate response. For young people, yes. And then the flip side of that is like our oncology patients who are sort of a third group of patients who often have low blood pressures, just anecdotally. Um, A number of those patients are also tachycardic at baseline. And so determining whether or not a 110 to a 120 jump is like a tachycardic response can be very difficult. So I think I definitely know if someone is hypotensive with the heart rate in the 70s, that matters. I, I definitely pay attention to that and try to figure out why. But if they're not truly tachycardic, it's not something you can necessarily rely on, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I think that that is for the reasons that you pointed out, medications, conduction issues, that is a differentiating factor in pediatrics. That's important to point that out.
2: Now let's talk about hypertension. Okay. So I feel like this for our residents and for our nurses taking care of a large population of adults is going to be the biggest change. What blood pressures do you accept and how do you know when to give hydrouse?
0: Everybody's comfort level with hypertension is a little bit different. I think it's pretty well accepted that for most people who have hypertension with even blood pressures like 180s over 120s, the risk is always that you drop them too fast, that you over-treat it and not under-treat it. So the first step is I largely don't pay attention to hypertension unless the systolic is above 180. And I usually don't treat with IVs until it's above 200. But the exception is so when you're seeing a high number, the thing to always ask is: Are they in a hypertensive emergency? Like, are they in crisis? And that's defined as whether or not you you have end organ damage, and that can look a number of different ways so that could be hemolysis that's showing up as dark urine that can be a really bad headache that can be vision changes that can be like tia stroke-like symptoms i mean aki is technically written on there but in reality like you're not drawing a lab in the time to coordinate with the with the actual hypertensive emergency so the things that we often see is if they have a really bad headache if they have bad vision changes if they're very nauseous those are signs that we need to treat this And at that point is when we use IV to bring it down. The goal is to bring it down slowly. So 25 to 30% in the first couple hours, and then another 25% over the next several hours. And then your goal is to get them to normal and normal being 120 over 80 in days. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of hours. Whereas if they're sitting at 180 over 120 or a number of my patients have uncontrolled hypertension when they're at home and so they could be sitting at 220 over 100, Mm -hmm. if they don't feel it and they kind of live that high normally, then using oral agents is sufficient because at that point... If you bring them down to 160, that's a huge jump. They just drop 60 systolic points with a single dose of a medication. And we always worry about causing someone to syncopize or hypoperfuse their brain. So that's why we're careful. So I think the biggest thing is, is there end organ damage? If so, that's a really good trigger to use IV. And then if not, and they feel fine, and there's no evidence that their hypertension is hurting them, putting them on an oral control regimen to bring down their blood pressure, is perfectly adequate. The one thing about hydral, and I know it's definitely used more in the the pediatric population, your mileage can definitely vary in the adult population. So hydral is a very labile drug in the sense that people respond to it really differently. And it's hard to predict when they're going to respond. The pharmacokinetics are not predictable. So I have seen that I give IV hydral and then it doesn't work. And two hours later I give another dose and then the hydral tanks them. In theory, like we know what the pharmacokinetics are, but historically, especially in older patients, the response is not predictable and can be delayed. So hydrol is definitely a drug that you can use. It's one of the several drugs in your toolkit, but we also like labetalol. Heavy labetalol is very helpful. Nitrates are also very helpful, especially if they have cardiac issues. And again, that's a whole other talk, but just the, that's the one caveat about hydrol. That's the basic of what I remember from adult medicine versus peds is that hydral
1: is less preferred and that we tend to use labetalol first in adults, whereas in pediatrics, we use hydrol first, typically. Still, I mean, comparison-wise, because we love to compare and contrast, and organ damage, those signs are the same in both pediatrics and adult medicine. We're looking out for the same things in our patients who come in with hypertension in our ED
0: as well. What about hypertensive urgency? Can we define that? So we have largely moved away from urgency and we just kind of call it severe asymptomatic hypertension or that's the two are synonymous. So when I say hypertensive urgency, it's just a blood pressure I'm uncomfortable with and needs to be brought down at some point soon, but doesn't need to be brought down imminently with IV. The one thing that I will say is having worked in our emergency department, our ED docs deal with this all the time is if someone just has like a little bit of a mild headache, is that emergency? Is that urgency? It's hard to know. I think the one lesson is if you're going to bring it down with IV medicines to be judicious um, and not drop too fast regardless. But urgency is a blood pressure, 180 over 120, that needs to be managed. It needs to be controlled, but there's no end organ damage.
1: Can you think of maybe the most common classes of antihypertensives that you find yourself using and tell us a little bit more about those?
0: Yeah, so we talked a little bit about hydrol and the issues with that. So that's one thing to remember. Labetalol we use all the time. Labetalol is a great drug. The one thing that you always have to think about with IV medicines is you have to chase them with a PO. And labetalol is tough because it's TID dosing. It's Q6 to Q8 dosing. The thing that's most limiting about labetalol is the heart rate. So a lot of our patients are on beta blockers already. And so giving labetalol, giving dual beta blockade is not the most elegant solution. Or if they're bradycardic with heart rates in the 60s, you can't drive them down anymore. So that's the big exclusion criteria for labetalol. It's a great drug. I really like it. It's usually my first go-to. Are you sponsored by them? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's got to be a generic company at this point. It's got to be generic. Captopril is a great drug. It's a PO, short-acting ACE inhibitor. It's a great drug because you can just stack pretty quickly. Um, you can start at low doses. If it doesn't work in an hour or two, you can just give another one at a higher dose. And then you can convert very easily to lisinopril or enalapril, which are both great ACE inhibitor long-term treatments for hypertension. The only thing to worry about with captopril is obviously the, the ACE inhibitor allergy, the angioedema cough, the adverse effects from the class of drug. But also if they have any impairments in renal function or an AKI, I would not give ACE inhibitor as a start. There are exceptions. People who have CKD can take ACE inhibitors. But Mm -hmm. I think as a rule of thumb, if they're coming in with bad kidney function, you don't know what their baseline is. You don't know if it's an AKI. Just stay away from the ACE inhibitors. And then nitrates are the last class of drugs. Nitrates are Mm -hmm. great. They can come in a lot of forms. So there's the nitro drips. So there's nitroprusside and a couple other formulations of nitrates. And Like in our hospital, you have to be on a cardiac floor to be on a nitro drip, but those are options. There's also nitro paste, which a lot of institutions have, which is literally just a cream that you put on someone's chest. You order like half an inch or an inch and it works pretty quickly and you can wipe it off when you're done. So nitrates are also great drugs. If you're willing to get into the whole drip realm, none of those patients are going to be on floors because they just require so much active titration. But I think that's what I would start with.
2: Excellent. Moving on to oxygen saturations here. We think the goal sets couldn't possibly be different. We had discussed before some variation in COPD. Can we talk about that?
0: Yeah. So a good rule of thumb for oxygen sats is 90 and above. Um, for a normal person, that's pretty tolerable. COPD is an interesting exception, though, because... Patients with COPD are chronically hypoxemic, and their SAT goals are lower, 88 to 92. And this is borne by trial data that has shown that they live well at these saturations. And it's important for a couple reasons. I think the first is that a lot of times when you put these patients on a lot of oxygen, you're just not going to be able to get them to 96, 97. And so... Oxygen is like another medication, and there are definite harms to giving too much. And so you don't want to be in that position. And so targeting the right SAT goal 88 to 92, whether or not they're resting or ambulating is the right goal for them. And I think the other reason that people worry about giving patients COPD oxygen is that it might, there's some teaching that it might decrease the respiratory drive. I I wouldn't say that for your routine floor patient, giving them a little bit more oxygen is going to harm them uh, considerably in any way. It's mostly that like any medication, even IV fluids, you don't want to give too much of something that has risks. Like we know that giving too much oxygen is risky um, in any patient. So I think that's the reason to worry about the hypoxemia. Um, And I think the one thing to always remember with COPD patients is that they also often have a lot of hypercarbia or CO2 retention chronically. And so... A minority—it's definitely not the majority—but a minority of patients will have baseline PCO2s on blood gases much higher than normal, so 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, with the normal pH. Like they are, chron- they chronically have a respiratory acidosis. The thing to remember with them is that if they have a change in mental status, that could signify CO2 retention. With while at the same time you're watching them maintain relatively normal Sats for them. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to always put on your differential for someone who has COPD that if they're obtunded or if their respiratory rate is lower than you would expect, that they may be retaining CO2 without the concomitant hypoxemia that you might expect for other people. The you know notable exception being that if they're not protecting their airway, like if their GCS is five or something, then you'll see the hypoxemia, but you can often see the hypercarbia with a relatively normal SAT for them.
1: Okay. So just to summarize, CO2 retention is a chronic. Ongoing issue in our COPDers. They also may have chronic hypoxemia even when they're not an exacerbation. Their stats may not be reflective if they start to have you know worsening of CO two retention and a decrease in their respiratory rate. The first signs clinically may be that they're
0: a little bit obtunded. Yeah. The Cycle can be very vicious because, and we see this in our emergency rooms all the time, is they come in with the COPD exacerbation and then they start retaining CO2 because of the COPD exacerbation. They get a little bit more obtunded, So they're not breathing as fast. So they retain more and then they get more obtunded, and then they retain more. And the goal is to catch them right at the right moment with BiPAP and get them to blow off some of that CO2 with some positive pressure. But you have to time it to a point where they're awake enough to cooperate with the BiPAP machine. So the goal is to stop that vicious cycle somewhere in the middle.
1: All right. Now that we've kind of talked through some of the major vital sign differences, let's talk about sepsis and sepsis escalation. So in pediatrics, we, many residents are familiar with the pediatric early warning sign system, where basically changes in vital signs then trigger us to kind of automatically escalate and look for potential developing sepsis in a patient. And, you know, it's not just sepsis. Hughes helps us automatically consider Etiologies for clinical worsening in a patient. So these can be triggered in respiratory distress and status asthmaticus. They can be triggered for many different reasons, but one of the things that prompts us to consider is sepsis. From what we remember from med school, SIRS criteria, SOFA criteria, those kind of were things that we remember from internal medicine. We're wondering if you can walk us through that.
0: Absolutely. So the SIRS and SOFA criteria, it's SIRS has four criteria. SOFA has many more than four, but then there's the Q sofa or the quick sofa that has three. The general goal without physically reading out. But the goal is just to identify vital sign, effectively vital sign and lab abnormalities that are concerning for sepsis. So SIRS, for example, looks at fever or hypothermia, which is very important because a lot of elderly patients will get hypothermic. Tachycardia, white count, and tachypnea. And then QSOFA is a slightly modified set of criteria. We definitely use these. I actually think our electronic medical record system flags for these things. This is how they do sepsis flags. I personally, I think sometimes if I'm not really sure if someone's infected, I go back to these to see if it would sway me one way or the other. And I think what we are seeing uh, with coronavirus patients actually is their QSOFA score on admission sort of gives us a hint as to how sick they are and what their trajectory might be. And so I think it's extremely clinically relevant.
1: So what I remember about SIRS versus SOFA is that QSOFA and SOFA are predictors of actually ICU mortality and are not necessarily used to diagnose sepsis, whereas SIRS criteria are used to kind of flag you for sepsis. Is that
0: accurate? That is completely accurate. And I think the big difference between QSOFA and SIRS is QSOFA looks at mental status and uh, systolic blood pressure, whereas SIRS does not. Um, and then the SOFA criteria is much more expansive. Um, And that's why I think QSOFA has been used as not so much a prognostic tool, but just to give you a little bit of information about how sick that person is and how they might do in the future, which is why um, it's been very relevant in coronavirus, because that's what we're seeing here.
2: Right. And that's sort of the way we use PEWS, too, because that could be that could be triggering sepsis or it could be triggering impending respiratory failure. So what are the service criteria?
0: So the surge criteria,
2: um, you need two
0: of the four following criteria. So a fever greater than 38, which again is 100.4, which we did talk about a little bit earlier as to sometimes that can be fudged a little bit, Um, or hypothermia, so temperature below 36. But again, you have to put that in the context of sort of how the patient looks and what their baseline is. Um, Tachycardia greater than 90. Note, it's not greater than 100. Tachypnea greater than 20 and then either leukocytosis greater than 12 or leukopenia less than four. Um, older patients also sometimes suppress their bone marrow and then have a leukopenia. So that's the search criteria. Um, QSOFA, on the other hand, so altered mental status where they're looking at a GCS less than 15. Um, again, you got to put that in context. We have a lot of patients with dementia who are delirious. So you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, respiratory rate greater than twenty-two and systolic blood pressure less than a hundred, whereas we generally define hypotension with systolic less than ninety. So, again, like all of these, they're guidance, but um, it's not—it's not always the most rational thing to apply them very strictly.
1: Excellent. And what I remember from QSOFA is that basically, if you're scoring zero to one in these categories, then you're considered not high risk in terms of predictors of ICU mortality and worsening. Clinical status. If you're two to three, you are high risk. And one thing to keep in mind is you can always do the full SOFA score if you are triggering higher scores with just the Q SOFAs. And and I think the purpose of the Q SOFA is really to get you to investigate for potential causes of organ dysfunction. Consider increasing frequency of monitoring. The things we already talked about.
0: Yes, and um, I'm again not sponsored by them, but I'm a huge fan of MD Calc and all of their calculators because you could just. Literally input all the patient's vital signs and it'll give you a nice calculated score. And they have one for both QSOFA and SOFA.
1: Excellent. I'm so glad you mentioned it because otherwise we were going to.
2: (laughs) We want to ask you about your empiric antibiotics for sepsis. Okay. In pediatrics, we absolutely love ceftriaxone as a first choice. It runs in 30 minutes. It's going to cover most of your pneumonias, UTIs, things like that for our previously healthy kids. As we start to think about their degree of immunosuppression, hardware that they might have in place, we change our first choice antibiotic. When I was in med school, they still did a lot of Venkanzosin. What do you do? That's a great question. And I'm actually
0: going to punt it a little bit, mostly because it's so institution specific, like the microbiota and the NR antibiogram in Boston is very different from yours in D.C. And so I, a lot of it is guided, one, by institutional culture, and two, by the actual resistance patterns of the organism. I will say at Mass General, uh, if you come to our emergency room and there's concern for sepsis, depending on what the source is, so if someone comes in with pretty clear signs of a UTI, they'll get put on ceftriaxone. If it's a sepsis NOS, Vangsefapime is a choice that we tend to start with. Vangsefapime has fallen out of favor because of severe renal injury from that combination. But like my med school and I was there, I really liked Zosin as a drug and we very rarely use it here. Um, there are some considerations, Zosin comes in a salt load and bank has a lot of fluid and takes forever to run and that kind of thing. But it's hard for me to give a distinctive answer because every institution
2: is and should be different. How do you frame the concept of source control in your mind? Is this eventually we'll get that line out? Are you doing things more urgently? What if there's a Foley? Things like that.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really great question and actually causes a lot of um, debate. So Foley is easy. You can exchange it. But lines are really tough because if someone has a line infection and they have a port for chemotherapy or they have a pick because they have terrible access, it's not so trivial to pull the line. And so I think the best cases are in our ICUs where our lines are there for critical access and blood draws. In that situation, I think we start the antibiotics right away with the goal of pulling the line and exchanging it when we can. And the goal, again, is to do it. If it's a line that doesn't need to be in there, we'll pull it immediately. But if it needs to get exchanged at some point and there's limits, then usually we'll start the antibiotics and then wait for a time that we can do it.
1: That's very similar to pediatrics.
0: Oh, yeah. We're not out here pulling lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Last thing, which kind of will dovetail nicely into our next episode, what types of fluids do you consider for your initial fluid resuscitation? What crystalloids are you using?
0: Yeah. So historically, normal saline and LR used to be equivalent. I think there's some data coming out and that's come out recently that LR is a better choice. So if you talk to our emergency room, they usually start LR. Bolusing, if it's young, so the patients that you're seeing, assuming they don't have really bad heart failure or renal disease, which tends to be the biggest limiters, just bolus a liter. The goal is actually, I believe, 30 cc's per kilo for the initial bolus, which ends up being a handful of liters, actually, like three to four liters. And what they usually do is a liter at a time. And the things that you're looking out for are to one, that they're not having respiratory distress. So if they get flash pulmonary edema, that's the biggest concern. Young patients shouldn't get that unless they have a known history of heart failure, but we're always concerned, especially in coronavirus, the cardiomyopathy component that comes from this and viral myocarditis. So that's a reason why you should go one liter at a time. So I think that would be my recommendation. Normal saline is completely acceptable. But there is some data showing that overall outcomes with LR are better in certain situations. And the one thing to remember is when you bolus large quantities of normal saline, you can give yourself a metabolic acidosis. So we tend to prefer LR, but uh, in a pinch, either one will
1: do. Okay, so just one other thing I wanted to point out there, you mentioned 30 cc's per kilo, our standard of care is 20 and 10 for neonates. So that is a difference to be aware of. One other thing I, you already touched upon beautifully, but um, besides your patients who have known cardiac disease and renal disease, are there any other common adult comorbidities that you're more ginger with your fluids?
0: Yeah. So if if I can't bowl as a liter, 250 to 500 cc's is what we go with. And the Patients that you really worry about. So, CHF, so congestive heart failure, especially people with aortic stenosis, are extremely fluid sensitive. Then, beyond, so if they have known valvular disease, even if they're not in a heart failure exacerbation, you got to be careful. Also, end stage liver disease patients, cirrhosis patients tend to be very volume sensitive. If someone has cirrhosis but is very compensated, doesn't have ascites, isn't in extremis from their cirrhosis, you can still bolus them. Uh, It just depends a lot on what their cirrhosis looks like. End stage renal disease, you can bolus them provided that there's a plan for dialysis. And again, it just sort of matters where they are in their trajectory of dialysis. And like a CKD patient, you can bolus provided that urine output is fine, but it's your dialysis patients that you worry about. I think those are pretty much it with the caveat that technically anyone could get flash pulmonary edema. So you just have to be careful.
1: Absolutely. Okay.
0: Well, I think that about covers
1: it for the first part. We can't thank you enough. Uh,
0: It is a real pleasure because I don't know what I would do if someone asked me to
2: take care of a child. So (laughs) I am more than happy to help. Thank you. Catch us next episode. We are going to be talking about how she approaches the garden variety admission. I'm so excited. Walk me through the order set.
1: See you guys next time.